The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Good afternoon. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm, acting as the moderator for today's session. The topic is Employing F1 Students, CPT, OPT, and Transition to H1B. Joining me in today's panel, I have my esteemed, brilliant, knowledgeable, and awesome colleagues at the Murthy Law Firm, Adam Rosen, who's a member and assistant managing attorney, and who just reminded me he's been here about 15 years at the Murthy Law Firm, and before that he had actually worked in New York uh, before moving to Maryland 15 years uh, earlier for a few years uh, with an uh, immigration law firm in New York. We have Allison Terry, another brilliant young attorney who is part of our H-1B department and team, and they are familiar with all sorts of complex immigration issues, but in particular F-1 student-related issues. So, as I said, we're going to discuss issues that arise when employing a foreign national uh, and how you as an employer can assist the employee to make the transition to an H-1B as smooth as possible in today's crazy political climate. Um, The information will be helpful for employers to have procedures put in place to ensure compliance with the H-1B program and what to be aware of during the transition period and how to continue employment of the F-1 student employee, whether the employee is on a CPT, curricular practical training, or uh, on the OPT, which is the optional practical training, which is usually given after completion of the program of study. And if the foreign national employee has issues while working as a student, obviously it would affect prospective H-1B employment down the road. And issues, especially that we're seeing over and over and over again today, which is the USCIS denying the person's change of status uh, and the issues that could create complications in able to being smooth to be able to smoothly transition to H-1B status. Since the current rules and procedures with regard to F-1 employment and maintenance of status issues are complex. Many F-1 students and their employers can easily miss important issues, subtleties, deadlines, or just inadvertently fail to follow the correct procedure, which, again, as I said, could very often result in the student losing status. And finally, the government's new policies, several of which have gone into effect both in 2018 and in 2019 and will continue to be constant and rapid with the current administration, make it extremely important for each of you as employers to really understand, appreciate, and embrace and learn as much as you can so that hopefully you can prevent uh, or minimize serious problems for your employees. So with that, Adam, I'm going to ask you to briefly talk a little bit about the most recent policies that both employers 
and F1 students should be aware of. And I guess we're going to talk about the registration rule that just happened last week separately, not with this summary. Right, separately okay. with that, because that's more related to the cap. And, and I just want to focus on the major policies as related to F1 students and particularly status issues. So in August of 2018, specifically August 9th, 2018, USCIS, USCIS issued and came into brought into effect its final policy memo on when their, the unlawful presence will start for students in FJ and M status. And what happened here is that the 2018 policy memo revised the previous longstanding USCIS guidance about when you accrue, when you start being unlawfully present. The specific implications and effects of the policy memo um, to some extent are still a little bit unknown because we're still, as many of you are, probably still waiting for decisions on H-1B petitions. And what has happened in this memo is that USCIS said that when there is a finding made about a violation, it will start unlawful presence from when the violation actually happened. So you might not hear until now about a violation that happened months and months ago, which means that under this guidance, the unlawful presence has already started accruing or counting against you from when that violation actually started. Now, there's a lawsuit challenging this policy that was filed several months ago. We were expecting a ruling on this in the past day or so, but uh, we checked um, just moments before even recording this uh, teleconference, and it appears that there still has not been a ruling on this on this lawsuit challenging the memo. So the consequence for unlawful presence, to keep in mind, and this is a general rule, but for the students that are affected by this memo, the unlawful presence that you have of more than 180 days when you leave the United States will trigger what's called a three-year bar, which prevents you from coming back to the United States getting a visa unless you can get a discretionary waiver at the consulate. If you're unlawfully present for one year or more when you leave the United States, you're subject to a 10-year bar. You can still qualify for a non-immigrant waiver, but that, again, that is discretionary. And so the 180th day from August 9th, the, the date that the memo went into effect was earlier um, this month on February 5th, 2018. So under this... Um, it's crazy because t- t- a, right. chi- a student could, without even being aware, exactly. inadvertently have fallen out of status and created this huge mess, tr- you know, triggering a three-year or 10-year bar, which obviously affects the student, the family, the employer. Just e- crazy. Exactly. And because you don't... Your students are in whatever status, FJ or M, in large part, they're acting on the advice of the DSOs. And even though the many DSOs will very clearly state that they're not giving legal advice, they're given training and they have instructions on what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. And so as a student, when you're going to your DSO, in whatever these student statuses you're, you're in, and that you're asking them questions and they're answering the questions instead of saying, I can't answer that question, go away and talk to a lawyer. And then months later, you just get a decision from USCIS saying, well, actually, that advice, that information that you got from your DSO, well, that, that got you violating your status. And so you've been unlawfully present all this time. The scary part also is that a lot, I feel bad for the designated school officials or university, you know, they're sometimes called the international student advisors because they're not lawyers, they're not legally trained, they're expected to juggle 
a hundred other things, and immigration is like a tiny part for many of them or a portion right. of their work. And even as lawyers that do immigration law from morning, evening <laughs> to night, right. you know, 365, 24 by 365, it feels like nowadays. And uh, you know, we right. barely can keep up to, to the, with, with the crazy changes and that the, are happening. Right, and the challenge for for the DSOs as well, which puts them in also a difficult position is just the fact that they get this training and instruction from the Student and Exchange Visitor Program that's operated by ICE, but it's going to be USCIS or potentially the Department of State of the Consulate that is not giving them any kind of training and that is not doing this training or giving instructions in hand with the Student and Exchange Visitor Program. And so if they give information to the students, it's based on the information that they have from ICE, but then you have a completely different agency that is the one that's making the decision on whether or not they violated their status and are unlawfully present. So And doing it retroactively. Exactly. Which is beyond crazy. Exactly. So I, I, I honestly, I don't know that there's a lot that DSOs, the international student officers, are in a position to do because even the agency, the government agency that they normally interact with, even when they're talking about issues in trying to have complete information on what they're supposed to do and what they're supposed to tell students is not USCIS. It's not Department of State. It's ICE and the Student and Exchange Visitor Program, and they're not the ones that are making the decision on whether or not there's a violation. Right, and we were really hoping that before today, February 5th, 2019, we would have some kind of a decision on that lawsuit uh, because the deadline for the actually triggering the three-year bar for the students who could be retroactively affected is today, February the 5th, 2019. Okay, so with that, let's switch to maybe having Ali talk a little bit about this hot topic about curricular practical training or CPT. What is it? How does it work, Ali? Um, What should employers be aware of? Yeah, sure, Sheila. So uh, curricular practical training or CPT is really intended for students who are still studying. They're still pursuing their degrees. Uh, One primary requirement for CPT is that the training is integral to the established curriculum. Uh, Generally, this means that the training is going to meet the requirement if the student registers it for academic credit or it's actually specifically required by the program of study. Uh, In order to satisfy the CPT rules, there also needs to be an agreement between the school and the employer. Uh, The regulations actually refer to this as the cooperative agreement. Uh, Generally, a student's going to need to be enrolled full-time for an entire academic year before they're actually eligible to get CPT. Uh, There are some exceptions to this requirement. So one exception is going to be if the program of study specifically requires hands-on practical training during the first year, uh, then the CPT authorization would still be proper. There really are kind of, you know, few programs that require this where it would be proper. Uh, Example would be an MBA program or some engineering programs. Another exception to the rule is going to be that if the student actually transfers to a new program of study and there's no interruption between the two programs, any time accumulated during the previous program actually counts towards that one-year requirement for authorization for CPT. Uh, One thing to keep in mind about CPT as well, which I think we touched on a little bit, is that CPT doesn't require USCIS approval. So it's issued on the by the DSO on a form I-20, but it doesn't go to the government for approval first. 
which is part of the the good right. news and the bad news. The good news is you get a quick, <laughs> and the bad news is retroactively the government comes in and right. harasses the employer mm-hmm. employee and then the employer for potentially hiring a person who's not authorized. So let's briefly talk a little bit about the common problems that we have been seeing that you as employers may also have been seeing with your CPT students. A typical scenario involves a student who transfers to a new program after receiving a prior degree and having completed the F1 OPT, the 12 months of optional practical training. And in order to continue to work when there are no other options available, because the H-1B was either not filed or the person was not selected for uh, the in the H-1B lottery or the H-1 prior H-1 was denied, et cetera, the student then re-registers, goes back to school and obtains authorization for the CPT from the new DSO. People generally refer to this scenario as first day CPT, but as uh, Ali just explained a, a couple minutes ago, it is technically not first day CPT because it shouldn't be prohibited by the rules because it is not immediately on the first day since it is after the student has been on F1 status based on the prior degree program. But the USCIS frequently finds that such CPT is not integral to the new program of study. And once the USCIS determines that the CPT was not integral and hence incorrectly authorized, the student is now considered out of status for the entire time of the CPT employment. And as a result, that period of time could be counted now as unlawful presence under that August 2018 memo. And USCIS commonly requires evidence of the cooperative agreement or co-op agreement that Ali just mentioned and proof that the CPT is an integral part of the program of study. The employer also needs to make sure that the student's major program of study is directly related to the field of employment. Issues with CPT authorization arise when a student is pursuing an MBA with a concentration in IT and is performing training as a software engineer. Concentrations and minors are not supposed to be the basis for the CPT. It shouldn't be a concentration or a minor, but it should be the actual major program of study. And while on CPT, the student also is required to maintain full-time enrollment. Generally, the CPT should not be simply used as a mechanism for employment authorization because no other options are available, which unfortunately is the way it is with majority of the students. Right. And the government is taking the position that your primary focus should be your studies. And when they look at the amount of time that a person has been working, they then take the position that your primary focus has been work. Correct. And since the student is still pursuing a course of study, the study should be the student's primary goal, as Adam just mentioned, for which the OPT is supposed to provide the additional experience. And as I'm sa- as we discussed before, it should be integral and required for the education, not just ancillary to make a living or because, darn it, I wasn't selected in the lottery. So having discussed a little bit about the CPT and the challenges, let's now jump, Adam, to the OPT. What's the OPT and what does it mean? What are the restrictions? That's a good question, Sheila. So OPT, for everybody who doesn't know, it requires authorization from USCIS 
it's not employer specific during the initial one year period. And so the DSO is going to issue an I-20 recommending OPT, and then there is an application, an I-765 form that is submitted to USCIS requesting issuance of an employment authorization document card, an EAD card, that when it's approved by USCIS will indicate that it's for, for OPT. The period can be um, for a maximum of 20 hours per week when school is in session. OPT must be directly related to the student's program of study and is subject to the the same rule about full academic year or full-time enrollment before it can be authorized. So you have to have that full academic year to qualify. The student may not start employment until USCIS issues the EAD card, even if this occurs past the requested start date. And so while, while you're on OPT with their card, an individual may not accrue more than 90 days of unemployment. So while it's not specific to an employer, there is a requirement and a limitation on how much time you can be unemployed. And this, again, though, this 90-day unemployment period does not start until the EAD card is issued because that's when the employment authorization starts and the restriction on unemployment also starts. So um, per SEVP, the um, unit of ICE that is responsible for all the student-related matters, one of the permissible types of OPT employment is an unpaid internship or volunteering um, or unpaid training that happens. However, it should not violate labor laws to satisfy the OPT requirements. So in the context of, let's say, an H-1B petition where USCIS is asking to verify maintenance of status, if there has been a period of unpaid employment, internship training, the employer is going to have to document that there was this actual activity going on and that it did comply with the federal and state labor laws and not just um, that it was something that the person did and wasn't paid. Okay. Thank you for that overview on OPTs. Uh, Ali, uh, could, would you add just a little bit maybe about the STEM OPT? Mm-hmm. Sure. So STEM OPTs is really just an extension of OPT for 24 months for students who graduated with degrees in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Uh, one difference from your standard OPT is going to be the employer has to implement an actual formal training program, and this is done on a Form I-983. Okay, and we've been starting to see issues regarding OPT besides mm-hmm. the CPT. So, Adam? Yes, so students who exceed the unemployment maximum are violating status, and a W-2 form does not show that a person did a person comply with the law. USCIS is looking for actual pay stubs to show when a person was I'm actually employed. Now, the other another issue is that employment that's not directly related to the program of study. They're looking at the field of study that the degree was awarded in and what the work is that the person's doing. So they need to connect and relate. STEM OPT training at a third-party worksite, while it's technically not prohibited, the USCIS um, can and does um, inquire as to how the training is actually happening to make sure that it does comply with the STEM OPT rules. And then the fourth issue that we see come up is unpaid empl- unpaid employment during the first year of OPT that is in violation of the labor laws. It, it's really the burden is on the employer to show that it's in compliance with the law for that. And if you don't, USCIS is, as we know, itching to find that there has been a violation. 
Yeah, before it was very, very clear that even if it's unpaid, there's no problem. But I think now they're, as we've just discussed, starting to look at that because they're like, well, it might violate labor laws because you're trying to get some kids who are foreign right. for free. And we've seen also cases where people have responded to these issues in RFEs with a W-2, claiming that a person was um, paid or working for an entire for an entire period of time, but um, the W-2 itself doesn't show the periods that you were actually working. It just shows what you were paid for a particular calendar year, which is where the pay stubs, showing actual pay stubs for a period of time is is important. Okay. So now we've discussed the students on CPT, OPT, and the issues that we are seeing with them. So let's transition to, of course, the hot, the, the, the creature for the day, the H-1B. I know many of you know a little bit about the background. Before we get into the new registration rules, uh, that just got released last week, actually on January 31st of 2019. Uh, w- let me just talk very, very briefly about the H-1B cap. Many of you know that there's 65,000 that it's set is the annual limitation. Only 58,500 are available because 6,500 are kept aside for nationals of Chile and Singapore. Then there are the additional 20,000 slots specifically meant for individuals who have completed a master's degree or higher from a uh, U.S. university or school that meets certain requirements, being a public university, et cetera. And next fiscal year, which would really start from October 1st of 2019, also called fiscal year 2020, we estimate that the demand for visas will obviously, again, be far higher than the number of slots that are available which will obviously, again, result in the H-1B lottery and where majority of the H-1B petitions will obviously not be accepted for processing. Though I think in 2018, uh, April 2018, we actually had fewer H-1B filings than in the past several years. So I guess there is some type of self-elimination going on because the frustration and the costs involved and uh, obviously the cases will only be accepted during the first five days of April in the lottery system. And uh, as we talked about this registration rule, I know that the USCI has just issued it on January 31st, even though there was so much resistance by thousands and thousands of companies and lawyers, including Microsoft and the Small Business Administration, requesting the government to please hold off doing anything in a hurry. But in spite of that, they've gone full steam, released it. And even though major portions of it aren't going to be effective till next year, there's a lot to discuss. And I'm going to have Adam just briefly talk about it. Sure. So there's a lot there. But what we wanted to share with you today is just uh, really uh, just a couple of basic points about it that are good to know. So the two major changes that are made to the H-1B cap procedures by this new rule is that it creates a registration requirement and a change to the order for running of the lottery. Now, the registration requirement doesn't apply for this cap season that's opening for in April of 2019. Um, cap, filing H-1B cap cases in April 2019 is the standard procedure that everybody has been familiar with for years. Um, that that is not the registration requirement is not going into effect. But then the question is, what is this registration requirement? So, in brief, basically what happens is that USCIS is going to announce a 14-day period when employers or their attorneys will submit the names of people that the company wants to sponsor in a cap subject H-1B. Now, the only information 
the registration uh, process will require is basically the name, passport, I mean, some other identification information of the person. It's not an LCA. It's not USCIS forms. It's not documentation about the work. It's basically information collection about a potential beneficiary. And the other component is that the employer is going to have to attest under penalty of perjury that it actually has a job that it intends to file an H-1B petition for. And so USCIS will then run the lottery and select the winners. They will notify the people who are selected. Um, you, the idea is to have an online account that you can go into your account and check if you've been selected. But the way the rule has been written, it sounds like USCIS will notify people that they have been selected. And then what they have said is that you will have at least 90 days to file the H-1B petition within. They will specify the exact amount of time, but they've said under the rule that it will be at least 90 days. So it won't be less than that. It could potentially be more. Uh, the other thing they do say, which is um, relevant for our discussion here, is on the question of cap gap. They've said that this will not change. They're not changing anything about the cap gap rules. So it's not clear when exactly the 14-day period will run, but presumably it will have to be early enough so that even for people who will need to take advantage of cap gap because their EADs or grace periods may end at the very beginning of April, that it would potentially allow for people to actually file on the first business day of April. This is something that's not clear, and presumably USCIS will make this clear as we get closer to a point when they will actually put this into effect. But for right now, it's been suspended, and they have to develop the technology. They don't have it yet. Uh, and so they will they will give 30 days notice in advance of the 14-day period. So um, we should know sometime in 20. 20, whether or in early 2020, whether or not the registration requirement will go into effect or if it will be suspended. The other change, which is actually going into effect um, in this uh, cap season, which isn't really anything that anybody filing an H-1B petition can do about, is that USCIS is changing the order in which they're running lottery to give an advantage to holders of U.S. master's degrees. So when USCIS receives your H-1B cap petitions during the first five business days of April 2019, they randomly select for the bachelor's cap cases, the 58,500 that are not for Chile and Singapore, and they will include in that batch all the cases, those that qualify for the master's degree um, exemption um, and those that don't. And so the idea is that when they run the lottery and select the cases to be counted against the bachelor's cap, there will be some of those cases counted against the bachelor's cap will be cases that would also theoretically qualify for the master's degree exemption. And so once they've done that lottery, they will then run the second lottery of just those cases that have not been selected but qualify for the master's degree cap exemption. And so the end result is that somebody who has a U.S. master's degree from a public or nonprofit institution, then they will um, qualify, they will have a better chance of qualifying for an H-1B case in this year's cap. Thank you very much, Adam. So it's a lot. I know it's a lot, but I guess the good news is that they actually have not made major portions of most of the registration effective until next fiscal 
next year, April right. of 2020. So that's the good news. The bad news is that they went ahead with it and they don't think they fully thought through it. And those who want to game or scam the system, there's concern and research that there will yeah. be people who will misuse the system. People will mention false names. And how on earth would an employer know like months and months before. Already we have to know, file, when you file on April 1st, you're talking about an October 1st start date. How would you know like uh, the prior year that if you don't even, haven't even hired the imp- candidate? So, I mean, it's, it's practically, there's a lot of hoops to ca- cross through. But so since now, for now, both the cap gap issue, which we think is going to be somewhat impacted, uh, hopefully not too terribly, but for now, for this year, for the 2020 fiscal year, which starts on April 1st of the filings from April 1st of 2019, I'm going to have Ali talk a little bit about the cap gap, what do the cap gap provisions provide, and separately, who would be subject to the H-1B cap or quota? Sure. So let's jump into, first off, who is actually subject to the cap. So most of the time, I think, especially in the context of this teleconference, right, we're talking about F1 students. That's who you think of who's subject to the cap. Um, when we're trying to assess whether someone needs to file in the cap, the first thing we're going to examine is whether they've ever had a cap case approved previously. If they have, chances are they may be cap exempt as an individual, meaning they've already been counted once, their number has been picked, and they don't have to go through the cap again. Um, Another way for an individual to be exempt from the cap is uh, those physicians who have waivers through the Conrad program, they also do not have to file in the cap. Um, Another way to be cap exempt is actually through the employer. If an employer is um, exempt from the cap, this means that they're, you know, exempt because they have either they're a university or they're a nonprofit um, and they are or maybe they're a governmental research organization. Companies like this are going to be cap exempt. So even if an employee's never been counted, they can still work for this employer without worrying about the cap. Um, one important thing which we touched on is cap gap. So cap gap is actually an automatic extension of F1 status for students that are transitioning from H1B to F1. Uh, so it's transitioning going, from F1. Sorry, yes, F1 to H1. Um, so students that are going to kind of going to take advantage of this are going to be those who are in F1 at the time the case is filed, and this cap gap is going to bridge that gap between the end of the F1 and the start of the H1B on October 1st. Uh, This is particularly helpful for students who are on OPT at the time of filing the H1B because let's say your OPT expires, you know, June 1st, uh, but you're waiting to see what happens with your cap case. You're going to get this automatic extension of employment uh, so long as you meet the regulatory requirements. So the regulations require... Uh, that the cap case is filed with a request for change of status. So that part's important. You can't get the benefit of cap gap if you're not asking for a change of status. If you ask for consular processing, cap gap's not going to work for you. Which is ridiculous because now they're denying majority of the cases saying you fail to maintain status. So you're damned if you do because now a lot of lawyers are actually telling their um, uh, employers avoid doing the change of status because they're finding out a status and it's retroactive. So if you check off a consular processing, there's a better chance they won't hone in on your status, though they're harassing people even about that. So you're damned if you do, damned if you're not, don't. And if you need the cap gap, you really are out of luck. So you have to ask for it. 
Yes, and this is where you know keeping your doc, keeping documentation, being careful about what you're doing as far as CPT or OPT is very important because you're not going to know until unfortunately it's too late because the thing to keep in mind is that in 2018 the reason why February 5th was the magic date for 180 days is because even if your violation had might might have started prior to August 9th is because that's when the new memo came out but at this point in time if somebody let's say started doing something in September of 2018 and they and a cap case is filed for them with a change of status and USCIS makes a decision on that in let's say October of 2019 then you're talking about unlawful presence that they could USCIS could be saying started all the way back in September of 2018 and you might be in a position with a denied H1B petition and more than one year of unlawful presence and hello 10 year bar if, when you leave the United States so well i guess the only good news or bad news is most cap subject cases you can't file in September because the quota has been used up and they've shut No, it. but what I'm saying is if you have file a case in April for somebody who's been, let's say, on CPT from sometime in September right. or October, yeah. and you don't file until well after, it could it could have that kind of effect. It's just beyond crazy. Uh, Ali, did you want to add something else? or No, I think okay. the last thing really I want to keep make sure everyone keeps in mind is that this extension is also going to apply to dependents. So F2 dependents get the benefit of CapCap as well. Okay. Adam, let's jump. Can you clarify what events would affect the maximum period of the CapCap extension? So, good question. Now, SCVP, which runs the process, runs the the student F1 student program, um, is part of ICE, and they're in charge of the student tracking system, the student in exchange, the SEVIS program. They provide very detailed guidance on the specific dates of termination of F1 students that conditioned on specific events. So this guidance could be used as a point of reference when you're trying to figure out if a person is able to benefit from cap gap extension and how it how it would apply to a specific situation. So for example, if the H1B petition is properly filed at the beginning of April, this alone extends a student's OPT period until a specific time in the future. Now, should the petition not be selected for for the cap, then the student status would terminate on the last day of receding for H1B cap cases in general unless the student has remaining time on their OPT card. So in basically saying that you do have some of the, something of an extension even while you're waiting to figure out if your case is accepted or not. If the petition ends up being selected in the lottery, then the status, the F1 status, would generally be extended until September 30th of any given fiscal year. So if the petition is withdrawn or denied before September 30th, the OPT authorization extends, excuse me, the OPT authorization ends 10 days after the date of the withdrawal or the denial, and the student would have a 60-day grace period after the date of the withdrawal or denial. It is not entirely clear, however, what the student is entitled to do if the petition is withdrawn or denied after September 30th, because different government agencies have expressed different opinions with regard to this situation, and the issue is constantly in flux. In the past, I believe people have been successful sometimes in getting back into um, F1 status and having their CVIS records that may have been closed re reactivated. I know that last last year in the fall, I believe it was in the fall of 2018, um, the government was um, slowing down on doing that, and then they started refusing to 
reactivate Sevis records. So it, it's not necessary. You're not necessarily going to be able to get back into school without leaving the United States if your H-1B petition that's accepted in the CAP is withdrawn or denied after September 30th. Okay, thanks, Adam. I know I'm always very mindful of the time. It's right around 35 minutes, and we try to wrap it up within 45 minutes. So our goal is still on target to do that. So one of the concerns, uh, questions sometimes are uh, that's asked is, how will the student or the employer know if they actually have the cap gap extension and protection? Is there something, someplace on the form that you actually can request it? And the the general answer is that you, as the petitioning employer, you would know if when you when and how you filed the H one B petition, whether it was timely filed, whether you actually requested a change of status, and three an October first start date, when the receipt notice is issued by the USCIS, uh, you will know whether it was timely filed. Also, once the USCIS receipts the petition, issues the receipt notice, the information in the system will update the student's CVS record. That is the student and exchange visitor information system. However, there are instances where the data does not transfer properly. And as a student, the student is responsible ultimately for checking with the DSO to verify that the student's CVS record has been properly updated based on the H-1B filing. Um, the tricky part, of course, is that the student will not be personally notified in case there is either a withdrawal or a denial of the H-1 petition. So it is very important for the student to to remain in contact with you as the H-1B employer or petitioner and with the DSO to ensure that their case is being carefully monitored. So next, the question that's often asked is also about should the student obtain any new I-20 from the school to reflect the fact that the student is in some type of a period of a cap gap extension alley? Uh, sometimes, yes. So if the CVIS system doesn't reflect the proper filing of the H-1B, the DSO would need to issue a new I-20 reflecting the fact that the student is eligible for H-1B cap gap and reflecting the extension of the student's status. And this updated I-20 should be sufficient for employment and I-9 purposes. Okay. And the next question that's often sort of asked here is, if the student who is the beneficiary of an H-1B petition, which, is, which has been properly filed for change of status, can that student benefit from an automatic extension if, uh, to, to be able to both stay and to work in the U.S. if it was filed during the grace period after the completion of the OPT employment authorization? So there would be an extension of the F-1 status in this scenario, uh, but unless they actually have OPT work authorization at the time the CAP case is filed, there is not an extension of the actual work authorization. Okay. Uh, Adam, I'll come to you now. Once the H-1B has been approved with a change of status, hallelujah, can the student remain in F-1 OPT status and use the remaining time available on OPT? The short answer is no, because once the H-1B petition is approved with the change of status, it goes into effect right away. The beneficiary must begin his or her H-1B employment on the petition validity date, and the remaining time in OPT cannot be reclaimed. It's just lost. If the student doesn't want to start H-1B employment and wants to remain in F-1 status, uh, if the petition is approved before the October 1st start date, the employer should withdraw the petition, and then the student should contact the DSO to request a data fix from the SEVP help desk. 
Once the petition is approved and it's past October 1st, the data fix is no longer going to be, going to be possible. The, so in this situation, the, the petition could alternatively be approved, but the change of status could be denied. And sometimes USCIS issues two separate denials, one on the petition and one for the change of status, or if they issue an approval on the petition and the denial on the change of status. But then you're facing a situation where you have a violation of status finding, and in light of the August 9, 2018 ULP memo, you're running into a situation of potentially a three-year bar or a 10-year bar, depending on how long. And so it may be advisable in such cases to just file the petition for consular processing. And one, when that's approved, the person who is in on who is on F1 OPT, that kind of petition approval that is filed for consular processing would not impact your ability to continue in your remaining time in OPT. But in order to be counted against the cap, you would actually have to go and get the visa because just the approval itself is not normally considered to be counting you against the cap. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And so I think that where you would request for consular processing would probably make a lot more sense if the student still has time remaining on the F1 OPT, whether it's the OPT or the STEM OPT, because then you're not as concerned about the cap gap. But if your status and F1 expired on April or May and you wanted those extra four or five months, you're much less likely to want to just file for a consular processing and right. lose four or five months of work authorization. I think the CPT also tends to raise more flags for USCIS. So if someone is on OPT, um, the change of status might be safer, but it also might be safer just to do the consular processing because even if you get asked about your work in the United States, it's based on OPT, which is not when you're taking classes. The, the issue with this CPT is that you're taking classes and working, and so the even the consular officer looking at this might be focused on which is the primary focus of your activities in the United States, the classes you did or the work on CPT. With OPT, there's no expectation that you're doing classes. It's work. It's just work. So if you have OPT and want to use up your OPT and you're fine going to the consulate, then do it for consular processing and you're not dealing with the issue of verifying the maintenance of status. Correct. Good. So as you can see from our discussion for the last 40 minutes, students and recent graduates, including STEM grads, are clearly valuable resources for many of you as employers in the United States. And since many of these students and recent graduates tend to be foreign nationals, particularly in the STEM field, employers need to be aware of potential issues and complexities. The federal government, of course, is continuing its investigations, not just of employers and uh, uh, consulting companies, but also of universities or schools um, over the past several years and violations of H-1B uh, and our work authorization laws carry both civil and criminal penalties. And the USCIS is constantly changing policies and memos and guidance. And unfortunately, many times, no memos, no change, no regulations, obviously, in almost all of the cases, have dramatically changed the landscape for F-1 visa holders. And so as a result, you all as employers need to be even more careful to ensure that you have set up your training programs with these STEM OPT extensions, that they are being properly carried out, that you have an employee preferably at the client side that is monitoring and training the junior, younger people on the F1 STEM extensions, 
um, and failure to do so could obviously lead in both the change of status denial, but also the uh, three-year or 10-year bar to admission that we've been discussing uh, this entire time. And so have your systems in place to deal with these issues, and obviously you need to be in touch with a knowledgeable immigration law firm or attorney to discuss your business practices. As we said, there is luckily that lawsuit that has been filed by a bunch of universities because they realized that the August 9th, 2018th memo is ridiculous in retroactively going back and basically slapping employers, employees, and that takes away a lot of the the. Uh, the, 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 I guess the attraction in applying for additional education and universities. Uh, as you can see from the discussion we have today with Adam Rosen, Ali Terry, and myself, Sheila Murthy, we have an incredible team at the Murthy Law Firm that can certainly guide you and assist you in setting up the mentoring and training program or helping answer questions or dealing with issues or unfortunately filing RFE responses, notices of intentions to deny, notice of intentions to revoke, which are becoming more and more and more common in this administration. So on behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, Adam Rosen, Alison Terry, and the entire Murthy Law Firm team, we want to thank you for joining us for today's teleconference, and we look forward to continuing to help you and your business or company in 2019 and beyond. Thank you and have a great afternoon. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.